This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome to Draft Over. And usually I say hallelujah. But this year, guys, uh, there was something more. Something like, my God, where did all those people come from? I mean, do you see those crowds? I think the NFL estimated that something like 600,000 people were there in Nashville for the draft or about 100 times the size of my hometown here in Connecticut. Uh, well, you know, Clark, you used to take an actual event to attract a crowd. Uh, now it seems like all it takes is a bingo contest using young <laughs> kids and old scouts and the same kind of hopes that are involved in bingo. Hope you win. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't know which team said bingo last week, but uh, I wasn't all there. Them. I know you get <laughs> all of them. Yeah, that's right. You know, I love it when they make these draft picks, and every guy on TV goes, "What a great pick!" And there's not a bad one. Um, anyway, I wasn't there. I know you guys weren't. Uh, but since the NFL has taken the draft on the road, the crowds have gotten bigger. And bigger and bigger. So as someone who covered it back when, I don't know, I think it was held in Mary Marquis, New York. But uh, here's my question. You like it? Or do you want to turn back the clock? Well, Clark, the first draft I covered was 1973, long before the days of the Marriott Marquis. Ooh. It came two weeks after the Super Bowl. It went 17 rounds straight through, <laughs> starting on a Tuesday morning, ending in the wee hours of Wednesday morning. There were 440 players selected. No TV or radio to document the event. I was in Detroit covering that draft and watching three of my Michigan State classmates go into the first 40 picks, Billy Joe Dupree, Joe DeLamalier, and Brad Van Pelt. But in those days, the draft was all about football. Now it's about prime yeah. time and putting up a show, and I miss those days. Yeah, Goose, was the draft in, in the Waldorf then? Uh, something called the Americana. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't know. I knew it was at the Waldorf at one time anyway. Uh, well, you know what? We're going to turn the clock back today. Yeah, we are. With former running back Chris Johnson, who made news last weekend by calling himself a legitimate Hall of Famer. Uh, we're going to find out why when we sit down with him. We're also going to talk to former Titans beat writer and Hall of Fame voter Paul Kaharski, get a sense of what it was like in Nashville last week, as well as uh, hear about the passing of Gino Marchetti from Scott Garso, also a Hall of Fame skater. So uh, speaking of the draft, Ron, if the league draws 600,000 in Nashville, what do you think happens next year when it celebrates the 100th anniversary of Bear Holden in Vegas. Oh, boy. Well, you know, it's interesting you bring that up because uh, for the past seven years, the NFL has spent millions of dollars on lawyers' fees fighting against legalizing sports betting in New Jersey and other budget-starved states. Now they do a complete pivot, and they take the draft to Sin City. NFL yeah. big weeks, consistent what on about one that? thing. Surprising. Never being guess, consistent. <laughs> yeah, well, we're going to get to more about last week's draft, but first we're going to commercial. You're listening to Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Uh, a couple of interesting items left over from last week's draft. You probably saw that kicker Sebastian, that'd be Seabass Janikowski, announced his retirement after 19 years. And with his departure, only one player from the 2000 draft is still in the NFL. And Ron, that player is... Uh, that would be your boy, Tom Brady. That would be. Uh, and, you know, by any measure, it's remarkable. I mean, not simply that he's playing, uh, but that he remains near to the top of his game, that he's led his team to three straight Super Bowls and four of the last five. Uh, but don't forget, aging Drew Brees is breathing down his aged neck. Uh, yeah. So uh, I think this is the future. He just turned 40. Brees just turned 40. Um, okay, here's another item. Seventh pick in the 2018 draft was Josh Allen. Seventh pick in the 2019 draft that was Josh Allen. Goose, you're a draft expert and our numbers guy. What are the odds of something like that happening? Astronomical. But let me say this. The next time a player by the name of Tom Brady enters the draft, even if he can't play a lick, he'll be the 199th player in the draft and hopes lightning can be striking the bottle twice. <laughs> New England gets them for our sake here. Hey, last one, guys. Um, as most people know, Arizona Cardinals took a quarterback. That'd be Kyler Murray with the first pick of the draft. Of course, they also took a quarterback. That'd be Josh Rosen with their first pick of the draft, the 10th overall last year. Now, I know what you're thinking. Yeah, well, yeah, so what? Well, so they paid $33 million a year ago to three quarterbacks. That'd be Josh Rosen, Sam Bradford, and Mike Lennon, who are no longer on the team. Ron? What does that tell you about the Arizona Cardinals? <laughs> cuckoo land, cuckoo land. Uh, 
you know, it tells me that if I own the team, it would uh, I would fire the GM, Steve Kime. In two years, he's told me to hire two different head coaches and two different quarterbacks, three actually, uh, at some very high price tags. Then he can't even trade Rosen before the draft so we can get something we can use this year. Plus, did we really pay $33 million for those bags of doorknobs that we had last year? Good <laughs> God. Yes. Yeah. How do they keep their jobs? Goose, what does it tell you about the card? Yeah, it tells me that desperate teams will take desperate measures. If you don't have a quarterback, you will pay as much as you have to pay or draft as high as you have to draft to find one. Well, we don't have a quarterback with us, but we do have a Hall of Famer. That's our draft expert, Rick Dr. Data Goslin. And that's the signal that uh, this is his segment. In fact, he's in the house right now. He has something to say about, well, Goose, I think it's not the guys who were drafted last week, but about those who were not. Is that right? Yes, sir. Ron's guy, Hamp Cheevers, led the NCAA with seven interceptions at Boston College guy. last season. <laughs> Alex Barnes finished the NCAA's top ten in rushing at Kansas State last season with 1,300 yards. Preston Williams finished fourth in the NCAA in receiving yards at Colorado State with 1,300 yards. And Jacoby Myers finished seventh in catches at North Carolina State with 92. Greg Dortch returned two punts for touchdowns at Wake Forest last season as one of the NCAA's top punt returners with an 11-yard average. And Joe Giles-Harris was Duke's MVP and a two-time first-team All-ACC linebacker. All were juniors last season and all elected to skip their senior seasons in 2019 to turn pro. But all went undrafted by the NFL last weekend, and they were not alone. A record 135 underclassmen applied for early admission to the 2019 draft. A record 91 of them were drafted, including 19 in the first round. But a record 44 of them went undrafted, which only proves that college greatness offers no guarantees of NFL employment. Now, Heisman Trophy winner Barry Sanders challenged the NFL system when he applied for early admission to the NFL draft in 1989 and won going to the Detroit Lions on the third overall pick. The following year, the NFL established a protocol for early admission to the draft, and 38 players applied. Only 18 were drafted, including Jeff George, a quarterback who went first overall to the Indianapolis Colts. Since 1990, there have been 1,711 underclassmen filed for early admissions to the NFL draft. 391 of them became first-round draft picks, and 20 became the first overall picks of drafts. Hall of Famers Jerome Bettis, Marshall Falk, Ray Lewis, Tony Gonzalez, Walter Jones, Orlando Pace, Randy Moss, and Champ Bailey all left college eligibility on the table to play in the NFL and all now have busts in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But for every Barry Sanders, there's an Alex Barnes. For every Randy Moss, there's a Preston Williams. And for every Ray Lewis, there's a Joe Giles Harris. Only 69% of all underclassmen have been, who have applied for early admission become NFL draft picks. Charles Woodson, Jason Witten, Rob Gronkowski, J.J. Watt, Ezekiel Elliott, Patrick Mahomes, and Saquon Barkley are other recent early entry success stories. All left school early to come become NFL draft picks, and a bust in Canton could await several of them. But that's little consolation to Buffalo quarterback Tyree Jackson, Georgia running back Elijah Hollifield, Oklahoma defense fan Imani Bledsoe, and UCLA offensive tackle Andre James. All went undrafted last weekend and, as undrafted college free agents, become long shots to ever play another down in the NFL. Little did they realize at the time that they likely left their best football behind when they left campus. Early entry into the NFL draft is not always the pot of gold. So many hope it is. Well, Goose, obviously, yeah, these guys get advice from various people and where they think they're going, including, I believe, from the NFL and, and from their colleges. Uh, do they simply get bad advice uh, most of the time, or do they ignore the advice of uh, uh, of the people telling them to stay in? Yeah, that, that's puzzling because the NFL does turn over the tapes of, of players that are coming out early to scouts and personnel people, and there's a cross-section of players that they give them where they can expect to be drafted. First round, second round, third round, fourth round, and a lot of these kids come out based on that. Some of these kids don't believe their draft grade. I'm better than that. Uh, and I think you know, there are agents that are pushing. You know, They're, they're going to get a cut of, of contracts. Um, but the number is going up by leaps and bounds every year. Each of the last three years, we've had a record number of, of underclassmen enter the draft. 
they don't want to. You know, they don't understand that they're only what two hundred and fifty-four players selected, and you, and you, this year we had almost half of them were were juniors. They don't get it. The, the half these guys aren't going to get drafted. Just don't want to be in that group. I think they all think they're smarter than the system. Well, hey, Goose, before before I ask you a question, I, I want to ask Ron a question. Sure. Goose said, "Hamp Cheevers was your guy." Did you think he was talking about Jerry Cheevers? <laughs> no, love the Hamp man. <laughs> but, but he could pick it, and so could Jerry. Just, <laughs> just you thought yeah. he was related to Jerry Cheevers, right? I different guess, right? airborne objects, you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, now Goose, this one's for you. Uh, given all that, what advice would you give these guys? I mean, if you were representing them, representing a, a, one of these these underclassmen, what would you tell him, and what would you tell others as well? I'd say stay in school for four years. Enjoy the time you have playing football. Uh, Peyton Manning stayed in school four years. Um, you know, you you can still benefit. And I think a lot of these guys, had they stayed on the college campus another year, played college football, they would have improved their draft stock. And I think a number of these players with another year of college ball would have been drafted. So I would say, you know, there's no guarantee that anybody's going to have a pro career. So enjoy the time you have left playing football. Play the four years in college and then move on. I think the you can put on one hand the great players that are really, really ready for the NFL after the junior seasons. A lot of these guys could use nothing. What about the injury risk? The guy says, listen, I, I want to go now because I'm afraid if I get hurt next year, I'm going to cost myself a lot of money. I may not get drafted. You may not get drafted anyway. I mean, there's a Michigan running back named Karan Higdon who didn't play in the bowl because he wanted to protect his draft status. Well, he didn't get drafted. So, right. you know, there's no, you, you, you can get you can get hurt walking across the street. So I, I, I don't buy that. A lot, a lot of these guys, you know, a lot of these guys, uh, some guys don't want to play in the senior bowl because of risk of injury. Right, right. You, well, you, you, know, never, other, you never know. Well, you know, the other thing is, Gusto, of course, a lot of these kids are in desperate circumstances. I mean, uh, you guys remember we had Ty Law on here uh, uh, right after he got inducted into the hall, and he told a story about uh, when he came out a year early because his grandfather was losing his house uh, because of a mortgage he had taken on it to buy him a used right. car for $5,000. Yeah, right. And, uh, uh, and how the people at Michigan told him he was going to be a third-round pick, uh, and he and they told him, you know, what's the most you can net, $100,000? Well, and like Ty said, man, $100,000 is like I hit the lottery. Yeah, but he, of course, believed in himself that he would be a number one pick, and he was, and he became a millionaire. But uh, I, I think that's part of it, too, don't you think? I mean, there's a lot yeah, of kids I, in just well, once, desperate, desperate. They're yeah. not in the Manning circumstance. You know? Once upon a time, it was called the hardship draft. No longer. Yeah. Kids are coming out whether they need the money or not. Right. Good man, thanks. Uh, now take a break, please, because we're going to. When we come back, we'll hear from a Hall of Fame voter who actually was at last week's draft in Nashville. You'll listen to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Okay, we talked about what an astonishing scene that was in Nashville last week at the NFL Draft with what the league estimates to be, I think, 600,000 people in the streets during the three days it was there. Now, we're going to turn to someone who is actually there. That's Hall of Fame voter, longtime friend, and former Titans beat writer, Paul Kuharski at paulkuharski.com. And Paul, I know you live there, you work there. Have you seen anything comparable in Nashville to last weekend's draft? No, it was uh, it was pretty crazy, but it was not really a big surprise to uh, most of us here. Nashville um, is very good at certain things, and one of those things is showing up to uh, a big party. And it was basically a big party, and uh, people showed up. I don't know what kind of estimator machine they use um, to get the 600,000, but, um, you know, I don't think there's any doubt it was significantly bigger than the last biggest, which I think was, was Philadelphia. Uh, Nashville's got a great setup for such a thing, a very wide Broadway um, that just happens to be the place where the honky-tonks are, a lot of great bar scenes, and, uh, you know, right up against the river. And so I think in terms of setting up a great outdoor stage, um, having great musical acts uh, to perform after the draft itself, and uh, just a great setting and Really, pretty great weather outside of some some rain. 
the first night, you couldn't couldn't do better. And the feeling here is um, the way New Orleans say would be high in the rotation for Super Bowl City. That that hopefully uh, Music City will be in a regular rotation. Uh, where if they take the draft around the country now, uh, they're still going to feel the pull of of Nashville and come back on some kind of regular basis. Yeah, I think we were based on the draft. It, you certainly would take a step forward. That was that was a huge response by the uh, by the city. And listen, I, I've never covered a draft outdoors. All mine were in New York at Madison Square Garden, or Radio City, or in the buildings of the teams that I covered as a beat writer. Uh, I'm wondering if you can give us a sense of what it was like to be in the middle of that. I don't know where you were seated, where you were standing, or how difficult or manageable maybe it was to get the person that you had to interview. What was it like for you? to get your job done there? Well, I, I confess, I, uh, initially my intention was to go about business as usual and be at the Titans headquarters, which is three or four miles away from where the draft was held. Um, then my radio show broadcast from the NFL Experience, which was on the campus of the stadium. Um, so we were there um, Thursday and Friday afternoon. We broadcast... Uh, at an NFL Network event um, the day before on Wednesday. So I was down there a lot um, while the stage was being finished and uh, and everything was kind of being put in place. And I kind of felt the gravitational pull then of, uh, you know, it's going to be hard not to be down here some and kind of see what it's all about and what it's like. And so I decided I'm gonna I'm gonna stay downtown for the first ten, twelve picks. I think then I can get back to the pedestrian bridge, get back over to the stadium side of the river, get back to my car, um, and be able to get over to the other side uh, of town to where the Titans facility is in time for them to make their pick at nineteen. I was presuming they weren't going to trade up, which they didn't. Um, and so. Uh, Along that stage, you probably saw the big white tent, which is where the the green room was along First Avenue and where the press room was. Um, But really, the fun part from a media angle for me was that um, your credential got you up on stage before the whole thing started. And there was just a lot of great color up there seeing the, uh, the select group of fans that got up in each kind of pen for the, for the fans of each team. Um, all the color up on stage. Hat show prints are a famous Nashville thing, and they had uh, giant versions of a hat show print for each team. The AFC up on one side of the stage and the NFC up on the other side of the stage. And then I think they did limited runs of only 100 for each team, which is a real collector's item that fans on stage went home with. Um, And I was there when Amy Adams Strunk, the Titans owner, came up and mingled with those fans on stage for her team for a while. Um, and, And then on the stage, you know, before the sun went down, just looking out, up Broadway, you know, where you could see all the way up to 4th or 5th Avenue, and the crowd went that deep. And then they kept kind of clear right in front that you could walk past if you were in the media or had the right kind of credential, um, where once things got started, they wanted to keep it moving, but you could you could walk past, so there was still some flow, which enabled somebody like me to be able to get from one place to another. Paul, was it... Was the outpouring of the 600,000 folks into the Nashville streets just a natural fallout from the Predators getting eliminated from the NHL playoffs a day or two before? It would have been better, Goose, if uh, if the Preds were in the playoffs, if they had played uh, Game 7 against the Stars. Um, if they'd get uh, uh, that would have been on Wednesday night, and then those 17,000, I mean, maybe they were there anyway and they came to the draft, but they would have yeah. been... Um, you know, pour, poured out Wednesday night into the streets and uh, and been right a part of things the night before the draft. There was a Jimmy Buffett concert at Bridgestone Arena on Saturday nice. night. Um, and so it would have mixed right in and it would have made the atmosphere a lot better. We were talking on the radio today during my show uh, and we'll talk some, some tomorrow. The Predators really kind of got off the hook 
for choking in their first round series <laughs> after winning the Central Division against the Dallas Stars. Yeah. Um, because we were talking draft all the time, and so uh, the funeral for for the Predators was cut short, and the uh, obituary writing we would usually do was cut short because we moved on to another big event, and we probably won't get back to it to the same degree. Um, so they kind of got a break um, for a miserable ending to a, what should have been a much better season. <laughs> Uh, was there anything about the experience that you didn't like, uh, Paul? Was it something that uh, maybe you think could have been done better or done differently? Yeah, it's funny. We were we were trying to cover some of this today. Uh, I, I don't I don't want to pretend like it was flawless, but I, I didn't really see anything. What I would have liked is uh, NFL experience. You know, I wanted to take my son down there at some point during the week. And the NFL experience didn't start until Thursday. It was like the it, it was the duration of the draft. They could have opened the NFL experience in Nashville on Monday and kept it open through Sunday and during a, a week where people were also coming to town for the marathon, which is on Saturday, they would have drawn for the entire week for kids coming out to run the forty yard dash and see the Lombardi trophy and do all the stuff. Um, that that entails, I thought they made a mistake by not creating a bigger window for that and really making it a week-long thing. Um, And I think if and when they come back, um, they probably didn't have a full enough sense of just, you know, if it was going to be 600,000 people, that plenty of those people would have gotten an early start and happily come out earlier and stayed later. Um, for something like the NFL experience on the campus of the stadium. Um, and then, you know, they closed a billion streets connected to, um, connected to, to the street that everything was on. So we were just trying to park at an extension of our radio station, the secondary campus, just to park there and walk to everything. And this was on Wednesday morning before the draft had even started. And it took, no kidding, like 35 minutes from the exit off of the highway to get to this building, which is usually four minutes, and it probably took us 35 minutes. I mean, I guess that's life in the big city, but um, in terms of the sacrifices people made, um, traffic-wise, it's pretty ridiculous, and that's with uh, the city telling non-essential workers to stay home. Wow. Non-essential workers stay home. <laughs> That's usually a snowstorm, isn't it? They closed the library. I mean, they, they did some crazy stuff like that. And you guys probably heard the the cherry tree stuff. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, they have cherry trees that line the riverbank there. And the, the league had somehow had the city prepared to chop down 21 of these cherry trees. Then it became a big deal that the public was aware of. And all of a sudden, the league only needed 10 of the cherry trees pushed uh, taken down, which led me to believe that there was absolutely no pushback on the city's uh, side until... Because once there was public pushback, they were like, oh, oh yeah, we don't need 21. We only need 10. Jeez. Try to do that in Boston, and the environmentalists would be able to shut the draft down. That would be it. Would not happen. <laughs> not going to do it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the NFL, really, I think that, yeah, that would be my... Uh, I think it will come to light after the fact now, um, though I had trouble getting a hold of any public documents because I think they did a good job of creating a scenario where there really aren't any public documents. But the league really took over the city, I think, without any real... Uh, I don't think there were elected officials who were really overseeing this thing. I think the <laughs> unelected official who was overseeing this thing was Roger Goodell. Yeah. Wow. Hey, Paul, we got to run, but thanks so much for the time. And we'll see you down in Nashville, see Nashville Super Bowl, okay? <laughs> I will be here. I don't know if they've got uh, quite the stadium for it but, uh, <laughs> or the weather, but uh, sometimes in February it's glorious, so it'd just be a roll of the dice. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Appreciate Thanks, Paul. it. Thanks, boys. Yeah. That was our man in the streets of Nashville Hall of Fame voter, Paul Kaharski of paulkaharski.com. Up next, former running back Chris Johnson, also the Tennessee Titans. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. 
This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we've been featuring the draft on this week's Talk of Fame Network program, and our next guest made a name for himself, and a big name, in the 2008 draft. Drafted in the first round by the Tennessee Titans after running a then-record 4.2440 at the Combine. I'm talking, of course, of running back Chris Johnson, who after a career that included an NFL record 2,500 yards from scrimmage in 2009, including 2,006 yards rushing, an NFL Offensive Player of the Year award, and three Pro Bowls, is here to talk to us about what else? The Pro Football Hall of Fame. Chris, first of all, thanks for joining us. Thank y'all for having me. You made some news last week when you said you were a Hall of Famer. I think it was in, in Nashville you were interviewed and you said you were a Hall of Famer. And you didn't equivocate. You said, I am a Hall of Famer. We're Hall of Fame voters. So you've got your chance here and an early chance. Can you make your case for us? We're three of the 48. Make your Hall of Fame case for us. Okay, okay. So when, okay, I said it, right? Um, and like, I don't think they put everything that I said in the interview or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, of course, yes, I think I'm a Hall of Famer and all those. But I also said I don't really know the criteria, the guidelines, and all those different types of things that goes into actually being a Hall of Famer, making a Hall of Famer. But if you were just to ask me, um, of course, I think I'm a Hall of Famer. Um, when I look at it from my eyes, if I was a judge and me looking and me looking at someone and whether giving them the nod or not, I feel like I would look at it for one, I would look at the numbers. Um, for two, I would look at um, what impact they had on the game of football. Um, did they change the game of football? Um, I know, I'm not going to say I know, but, you know, just for experience and, and things like that, I know they kind of listen to um, Super Bowl rings, um, like different quality quality of things. Um, and I just feel like um, when you look at Super Bowls and those type of things, they're more of a, of a team thing that's not really an individual thing. Um, because when I look at the year that I rushed 2,000 yards, like, yeah, we didn't even make the playoffs. So can you be like, oh, this guy didn't do everything he was supposed to do to get his team to the Super Bowl? Or however you want to put it. So, right. like I was saying, I don't have the criteria or anything like that, but I feel like myself, I feel like that I'm a Hall of Famer and I feel like I had a Hall of Fame career. Let me ask you this, Chris, since you mentioned the numbers. A magic number for the Hall of Fame with running backs seems to be 10,000 yards rushing. You finished just shy of that. Is, is that is that something you think should be a, uh, a, a concern or, or an issue? You had 9,600, so you weren't that far shy. But do you think that should be a concern? Um, I don't feel like it should be a concern because, you know, I know um, – Terrell Davis made it in under 10,000 yards. And also, um, just looking at the career, I feel like my year 7, 8, 9, and 10, you know, just bidding off the teams that I went to, it was certain things that went on that really didn't allow me to start, like, start those careers, uh, I mean, start those years at those teams throughout the whole season. Like, I didn't start... I started a little bit of my seventh year and then didn't start my eighth, ninth, and tenth year. I ended up starting, no, I'm not, I ended up, after week two or three, I ended up starting on my eighth year when I was with Arizona. And I think I had 800 yards that year, and then I got hurt like week 11. But like I did, I, I went for like 800 yards, like in basically like seven games. You know what I'm saying? So I just feel like if the opportunity would have presented itself for me to start throughout that whole year um, without getting hurt or anything like that, I would have been well over 10,000 yards. You know what I'm saying? So I don't feel like 
10,000 yards should be the mark to get in. But also, I feel like I get what people are saying, but you still have to look at other things within a person's career. Like, um, it's only seven guys in the in NFL history to ever wrestle 2,000 yards. I know what I'm saying. Um, I have so many stats that you can just name off that, like, no other running back in history having done. Like, um, a lot of times people forget about the 2509 all perfect yards um, that I still hold a record for. I don't hold a record for that for like 10 years and not even sure if, um, when that would be broken. But, like, there's so many things I can name that uh, that a running back in NFL history haven't done. So it's like, I don't know. Like, so I'm going to go back and say, I don't know what the voters, how, what the, because you just go back and look at it and say, well, oh, Terrell Owens had all these numbers ranked top one, two, three, and it took him a while to get in. That's why I don't know the criteria, so I can't sit here and be like, um, I know that that they are going to let me in. I, I know they're going to vote me in the Hall of Famer. Only thing I can say is um, I think I should be, and I pray to God that one day that I'm blessed with that opportunity to be a Hall of Famer because for one, I never – Anytime I do an interview or anybody asks me that question, um, I don't want to sound cocky or anything like that. I'm the most humble guy because I know even after this interview, there's going to be so many people on my social media saying, oh, you suck. No way. You're a Hall of Famer. <laughs> this and that. You know what I'm saying? It's just life that yeah. people is. I'm well, Chris, <laughs> Chris, if speed is a criteria, you're in. <laughs> now you you, you were quoted saying you could run a three nine. Yeah, I feel like okay, let's get to there. That's another thing. When people speak of speed and the fastest forty time and all that, I did that. Yes, but I, since I did that and coming to the league, I always said like I don't want that to be the highlight of my career for me to run a the fastest 40 time ever like because you can put a list up right now of maybe the top 10 top 20 40 yard dash times in the NFL and how many of those guys really had a great career you know what I'm saying and then a lot of the guys who ran the 4-2s the low 4-2s the low 4-3s those guys are 160, 170 pounds. I was 200 pounds when I broke the record. I was 200 pounds my years playing in the league. So, like I was saying, when I had the interview, I said, yeah, if I would have dropped 40 pounds at the combine and came in at 160, there's no way I wouldn't have ran a 3.9. Okay, let me, take, let me take you back to your college days. How does a player from East Carolina become a first-round draft back? You're one of only two in history. Yeah, it's crazy because I guess, you know, people start um, following me, like, you know, around my junior, senior year. But the crazy thing about it, my freshman year, when I went to college, I played at 170. It was two, excuse me. It was two senior running backs on the team. I ended up coming in and, and ended up starting over them. So, like, I ended up, I was a starter since week two of my freshman year. So, I've been a starter since then, my sophomore year. Then I got hurt my junior year, and then I came back my senior year and just, like, went off. But, man, I always knew that I wanted to be a first-round pick since I went to college. And everything really started was my – Freshman year in college when I started the second week of the season, my first ever carry in college football, I broke for 80 yards on a on a um on a sweet play. I broke for 80 yards. Ever since then, like that gave me the motivation. Like I'm here now, and I'm not looking back. And that just made me work harder and harder and harder and harder. And eventually, it came like. Even everything I did in college my senior year, I had 3,000 all-purpose yards. 
and I still was I still was rated a second round pick. It didn't, it took for me to run that forty at two hundred pounds to boost me up to the, the first round. And even that, even me getting picked in the first round, twenty four, I still was upset and had a chip on my shoulder because even though I was picked in the first round, it was still four running backs went ahead of me. And I felt like I was the best running back in the draft, but I know I was going up against guys that was at real big Division One schools rather than the guy that's at East Carolina at a smaller Division One school. So I, I understood the battle that I was up against, but what made me upset and kept a chip on my shoulders because I put it on tape. I did what I was supposed to do on the field. And then at the combine, I came and broke the 40 record with the fastest time ever. So I was upset about going so late in the first round. But, you know, it was something that was, I, you know, everything happened for a reason. That was motivation for me and kept kept a chip on my shoulder because I easily could have been, been, um, been satisfied with just Going first round. You know, you, you mentioned about your 2,000 yard season uh, and and how the team didn't make the playoffs. You averaged 125, uh, over 125 yards a game that year. You had 14 rushing touchdowns. And I thought you hit upon a, a, a good point that um, a player only has so much control over whether or not he's going to the playoffs or whether or not he's going uh, to the uh, Super Bowl. Uh, do you think that those kinds of things are are the players get too much credit for that when it comes to the Hall of Fame because it is really an individual uh, award. Yes, I, I think so. I think I think the Super Bowls, I think the Super Bowls and stuff, it's it's kind of like icing on the cake. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because I could have been a guy that's playing with Peyton Manning or Tom Brady. And um, and I can have three or four Super Bowl rings, but I'm not a Hall of Fame. I'm not a Hall of Fame player, mm-hmm. but I still got Super Bowl rings. Know what I'm saying? Sure. Like I kind of feel like that's just that's probably icing on the cake. And it helps people. It helps some people get in, but I don't feel like I don't feel like if two if two or two players have like kind of like the same type of career mm-hmm. and this player have a Super Bowl ring and this one doesn't I don't feel like that should be a determining factor of him being there before him because you don't know what type of team this guy played with you don't know what type of team this guy played with you understand what I'm saying sure yep. sure hey Chris like you, we've got to run. We're out of time. Sorry, but thanks so much for the time. And you know what? Next time we contact you, we're going to have a man versus Hall of Fame voter 40-yard dash. You up for that? <laughs> I'm up for that. <laughs> he, he'd, be back, he'd be back in his house in Orlando before we got out of the box. I mean, come on, kidding. <laughs> Chris, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, thanks Chris. That was running back Chris Johnson. Up next is Two Minute Drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. We're just about at halftime, so Robert, sound the alarm. That's the Two Minute Warning. That means it's time for the Two Minute Drill, and Goose, you have it this week, so take it away. And with the record-breaking attendance of 600,000, should the NFL draft be held in Nashville every year? No, put it in Mexico City. More people. <laughs> no, because too much barbecue can be hazardous to a sports writer's health. <laughs> right. Should the NFL outlaw draft chest bumps by Commissioner Roger Goodell? Yes, too easy to draw a four-game suspension. <laughs> uh, they should not, but his wife should. That was ridiculous. It was. <laughs> Who had, the best NFL, one inch. who had the best NFL draft last weekend? Uh, the bars in Nashville. Uh, Goose, as you know, I don't know, you don't know, neither does anyone else. Is there a common denominator between Duke quarterbacks and giant draft picks Dave Brown and Daniel Jones? Yes. The first names begin with D, which is what the Giants get for taking them. <laughs> uh, yeah, both were shot in the dark, taken without much aim. <laughs> 
Giants DM GM Dave Gettleman says in three years we'll find out if he was crazy or not for his 2019 draft picks. More importantly, is John Morrow willing to wait three years? No. Daniel Jones is not Burt Jones. Gettleman's gone in two. <laughs> well, I think he may be willing to wait three years on Daniel Jones, but on Gettleman, not so much. Who will have the better quarterback five years from now, the Cardinals or the Dolphins? Depends on how many quarterbacks the Cards draft between now and then. <laughs> Who's going to have the better quarterback in, the, in five years? The Redskins. Who was the best player not drafted? Tom Brady. <laughs> he was drafted. Joe Gillis-Harris, two-time first-team All-AFC linebacker. Les Snead, Sam Snead, or Norm Snead? Uh, sneezy, always kind to Snow White. <laughs> That's easy. Slam and Sammy won seven majors and 82 tournaments. What do those other two slappies ever win? 44 underclassmen went undrafted by the NFL last weekend. What message does that send to colleges? Give them more money. <laughs> you don't give them very good career advice. That's the end of that. That's the end of our first hour, but don't touch that dial. We have more on the draft. Deron Cherry, Marshawn Lynch, and the passing of Gino Marchetti coming up. So stay where you are. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to hour number two of the Talk of the Network. I'm Clark, along with Rick and Ron. We're going to hear more on the draft in this hour. But first, I see guys at Pro Football Hall of Fame is doing that talking bus routine again. And this time, uh, I think they took the talking bus of Michael Strahan to his TV show on ABC. And to Times Square in Manhattan, where fans could interact with it. Now, this is a lot like that talking bus John Madden that I mentioned to you guys last fall. I think we had a lot of fun with that. In fact, it's made by the same company, a company called Stat Muse. So I want to know, Goose, if you could ask the talking bus of Michael Strahan anything, what would it be? What do you really think of Eli Manning? <laughs> All right, Ron, how about you? Was Regis Philbin your biggest sack? <laughs> <laughs> I thought Goose was going to ask him about the Brett Favre sack. <laughs> Brett, could you please fall down so I can touch you? Um, well, I said they have a talking bronze bus of Madden in the hall, and they do. As I said, we talked about it last year, and Strahan's talking bus is going to join it in Canton. So it sounds as if, guys, this is somewhat of a coming thing. <clears throat> but what I'd like to know would happen if they took a real risk here and had talking bus of writers who have been elected to the hall. That would sprite writers. You know, you could hear from guys like, well, Edwin Pope, let's say, or Will McDonough, Bob Oates, Larry Felzer. Goose, you're in the hall. You like the idea? And what do you think they would tell you? Well, the writers wing, the hall's been awfully quiet over the years. We'd hear Pope telling us Cooch belongs in the hall. McDonough <laughs> telling us more Raiders belong in the hall. Fellows are telling us more AFL players belong in the hall. And Oates telling us Roman Gabriel belongs in the hall. <laughs> right. Well, Ron, as I said, you could also have the talking bus of our own Rick Gosselin, class of 2004, although we get that talking bus every week here. That's our treasure. But they could have it in Canton any day. So if you're going there... As a visitor, what would you ask it? And what do you think that talking bus of the Gooseman would tell you? I would say, Gooseman, you're from Detroit. Why did you tip off Bill Belichick about Julian Edelman and not the Lions? <laughs> and he would spill the beans to me because we are pals. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess we're going to have to wait on that idea. We're not, however, going to wait on a break because we're going to one right now. You listen to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. In keeping with our draft theme this week, or our post-draft theme, most of you know, or I think should know, that the Washington Redskins spent their first draft pick on Ohio State quarterback Dwayne Haskins, who was not picked by the Giants, or the Broncos, or the Dolphins, and who frankly wasn't too pleased with it. In fact, as you guys know, he was outraged, responding actually with my favorite quote of the draft, when, after lasting to that 15th pick with Washington, he said, the league done me wrong, unquote. To which goose I say, welcome to the NFL, Dwayne. 
Then Marino went 27th overall. He deserved better. Joe Montana, third round. He deserved better. Tom Brady, sixth round. He deserved better. Unless you went on the first overall pick, in your mind, the league done me wrong. <laughs> That's right. League done us all wrong. Come on, Ron. Done us all wrong. Um, as you know, Haskins wore number seven in college. So, you know, I guess he won number seven with Washington, right? Uh, not so fast. That number was last worn by friend of the show, Joe Theismann, as all Redskins fans know. And although it's not retired, it hasn't been worn by anyone since Joe hung up the cleat. So it's up to Theismann to give Haskins his okay. And he said he's, quote, not opposed to it, unquote. And that's great. Although Joe also says, before he makes a decision, he first wants to sit down and talk to him. So, okay, Ron, I want to ask you, why? I mean, either what, you do it or you don't, right? So right. what could Haskins say that might possibly influence Joe Theismann's decision? Thought you should have got the Heisman? Joe Theismann? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what, what could he say? You know, maybe Theismann just wants to see what kind of guy the kid is or ask him if he knows who he is or, or maybe he just wants to, uh, to uh, you know, fill the kid on uh, the facts of NFL life, which is eventually they do everyone wrong, brother. Just ask the pre-1993 retirees. Yeah, exactly. Well, what do you think happens here, guys, Ron? What do you think happens and why? In the end, he probably gives in because he's going to kind of look bad if he doesn't, uh, Theismann, I would think. And, you know, in the grand scheme of things, if that's the biggest thing he has to worry about, Joe Theismann, at, at his yeah. age, he's a lucky guy. Yeah. Hey, right. when you when you retire a number or take it out of circulation, it stays retired. It's that simple. I'm still miffed that the Detroit Lions unretired the number 56 of Joe Schmidt, one of the game's greatest middle linebackers, so that Pat Swilling could wear it. When wow. you retire a number, it stays retired. Don't put a player like Theismann in a difficult position of having to unretire his own number. He didn't wear number seven with Kansas City, but Deron Cherry, I said Deron Cherry, Ron, not Don Cherry. Deron Cherry could have had his number 20 retired. Yep, he was that good. And he was the subject for Carlson State Your Case this week on our website, talkoffamenetwork.com, with Goose making the Hall of Fame case for the former Chiefs star. So, Goose, you want to tell us about it? Well, the Pro Football Hall of Fame took care of some unfinished business in 2019 when it finally elected Johnny Robinson, the AFL's best safety of the 1960s for the Kansas City Chiefs. Maybe the Hall can now address some unfinished business with another Kansas City safety, Deron Cherry, who was arguably the AFC's best safety in the 1980s. Cherry was one of five safeties named to the 1980s All-Decade team along with Ronnie Lott, Kenny Easley, Joey Bronner, and Nolan Cromwell. Only Easley and Cherry played in the AFC, and only Easley and Lott now have busts in Canton. Easley's stay in the NFL was cut short after seven seasons by a career-ending kidney disease. He intercepted 32 passes, went to five Pro Bowls, and was a three-time first-team All-Pro. Cherry played the entire 1980 decade, intercepted 43 passes, went to six consecutive Pro Bowls, and also was the three-time first-team All-Pro. Easley had to wait 30 years to finally get his bust as a senior candidate. Cherry has never been a finalist. He retired after 11 seasons with 50 career interceptions. And he didn't even start on defense those first two seasons. In fact, as an undrafted college college free agent from Rutgers, Cherry went to his first training camp with the Chiefs, hoping to win a roster spot as a punter. Instead, he made the Chiefs as a backup safety, but suited up for only 20 of the 32 games in his first two seasons, playing primarily special teams and intercepting just one pass. He moved into the starting lineup in 1983 and promptly intercepted seven passes on the way to the first of his six consecutive Pro Bowls. In five of his nine seasons as a starting safety, Sherry intercepted at least seven passes with a high of nine in 1986. His 50 interceptions in his ninth seasons ranked 35th in NFL history. Johnny Robinson intercepted 57 passes in his 10th season as a starting safety, but there's one big difference between his candidacy and that of Cherry. Robinson was a member of a team that won three AFL championships and one Super Bowl. Cherry never played on a championship team. In fact, he played in just one winning playoff game in his 11 seasons. Of the 200 players, 280 players enshrined in the Hall of Fame, 63% won championships. Of the 200 players, 80 players enshrined, 65% played offense. Of the 280 players, only 11 played safety, and two of them were elected as seniors. 
So safety who didn't win a championship becomes the longest of long shot candidates for Ken. Still, Cherry collected 927 career tackles, recovered 15 fumbles, and scored three defensive touchdowns. He posted six 100 tackle seasons and has been elected to the Kansas City Chiefs Hall of Fame. His career is worthy of discussion by the Pro Football Hall of Fame Selection Committee with or without a championship ring on his hand. Well, okay, Goose, you and I are on the uh, Veterans Committee. We know how these things go. Uh, <clears throat> so in your mind, realistically, uh, what does his Hall of Fame future hold? Ron, as we both know, anyone and everyone in the senior pool is a long shot ever to get a bus and can. We've written 240-some stager cases on our website, and I'd be surprised if more than a quarter of them ever get in. Cherry's one of 66 all-decade players in the senior pool. They're all not going to get in. If the hall provides us an amnesty class, that may speed up the process for 10, maybe even 15. But as we stand, we have far too many qualified candidates in the senior pool and far too many seats at the Hall of Fame table. Cherry, Maxi Bond, Ken Anderson, Jim Culver, Max Speedy, everyone in the senior pool stands a better chance of being forgotten than ever getting a bust again. Now, we had him on our program last fall, as you remember, and when he was on here, he said he was frustrated by the process. That was his word. Uh, and that it was pretty incredible. Again, his words, quote, pretty incredible, how he played against some of the league's best quarterbacks and running backs and played them at a high level. A, do you agree? And B, as a member of the senior committee, are you equally frustrated by the process. Yeah, I mean, we don't cycle enough people through. We should be talking about a lot of these guys, um, and we're not. Uh, now, let, let's take a look at why he didn't play in the playoffs. Why didn't he take a peek for champions? They played in a division with Denver, San Diego, and the Raiders. The Raiders were winning Super Bowls in the 1980s. The Broncos were going to Super Bowls in the 1980s. And the Chargers with Eric Correo probably should have gone to a Super Bowl, too. So they're competing in a division with two Hall of Fame quarterbacks, Elway and Fouts. Joyner, Winslow, Jefferson, Chandler, Largent, the three amigos in Denver, elite passing teams. Yet they put four defensive backs in the Pro Bowl. Albert Lewis should have been discussed by now for the Hall of Fame. Duran Cherry should have been discussed by now for the Hall of Fame. But right now, without a ring, they are long shots. So I guess i got to ask you, you know, when, when, um, when I think of Cherry uh, uh, and when I think back to him, as, and you saw more than I did, of course, but I did see him yep. a bit. You know, when you saw Ronnie Lauder easily, in my mind, you thought about a Hall of Fame player. I don't know that Cherry rose to that sort of you know, almost automatic, you know, you, your eyes tell you. Um, how important is is that, that sort of, uh, Ed Reed, you know, so Ed Reed, you didn't have to watch him very long, say, so Hall of Fame player. Um, how important is the sort of eye test you know, for, for a lot of these guys? Well, it's also, it's, it's very important, clearly, and that's the, the bottom line, you know, in, in, in your eyes was the all fair, but secondly, I think it's 70, it's, it's over, over 70% of all all-decade players are in, in, in Canton. I mean, that should be a, a marker post for a Hall of Fame candidate. If you're an all-decade player, you deserve to be discussed. I'm not saying Cherry's a Hall of Fame, but he deserves to be discussed. He was an all-decade player. And too many of these guys, because they didn't win championships, have fallen through the cracks, and they, now they belong to you and me. They're our mess. Should they make that automatic that if you're an all-decade player, that you at least get one shot in the room? Yeah, I, I pitched that. I think your first year of eligibility, if you're an all-decade player, you should be among the finalists. Even if they have to expand the finalists from 15 to 20, those guys deserve to be heard. Mm-hmm. Thanks for that, Goose, man. And you know what? Nice timing. We, we just had a cherry festival around here, so your timing was perfect. <laughs> and speaking of timing, we're out of it, so we're going to break. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, as you probably know, Hall of Famer Gino Marchetti, one of the greatest defensive ends ever, passed away this week at the age of 92. Now, some of our listeners may remember him, as I do, <laughs> Ron and Gusto, as a two-time champion with the Baltimore Colts and member of the league's 75th anniversary team. But others, yeah, others might I think of him as one of the founders of Geno's, home of those great burgers, Geno's Giants, too, which he started along with former teammate Alan Amici. Well, you know what? He was both. 
and he remains a legend in Baltimore, where Hall of Fame voter and longtime friend of ours, great friend, Scott Garceau, a man who knows all about Gino and all about the Colts, and I suspect Gino's Giants, he joins us today. Scott, first of all, thanks for being here. Oh, good to be with you guys. Um, it's interesting you're talking about age gaps and, you know, who would know Gino and who wouldn't. Well, he was he was in my wheelhouse. Uh, you know, the, the 60s was kind of my time, and, and Gino played into the mid-60s, and I guess by the time I was eight or nine, I may have seen uh, the 59 championship game or the 58 game. I, I think I remember when the picture went off the screen, but, you know, what I remember of defense back in those early years were guys like Gino and Deacon Jones and Willie Davis, who who may not have been as spectacular as those two, but was a Hall of Famer and a, and a great player as well. So it was a it was a period where there were some real dominating defensive ends, and everybody was playing the four three defense back then. And you better have a guy that could stand up to the run and the pass. There was a lot more run in the game then, and I thought I thought Gino um, d- different time obviously, but he was Reggie White like in that he was stern and tough against the run, and he could come off the edge and bury a quarterback, too. He he was a complete, complete player, and I guess that's why we was voted the top defensive end in the first 50 years of the National Football League. Well, Scott, like you, I remember him from the 60s as well. I was watching football then. In fact, my first game that I ever saw was a 58 game watched on TV down in uh-huh. Virginia, and I thought, oh, I love these guys. I love United. I love Barry. Um, and, and I love the Baltimore Colts, and, and you and I worked together in Baltimore in the 80s. They weren't quite the uh, the same team then. No, not, but, not in the um, 80s. You're right. In uh, they weren't uh, early 80s. And then they left, of course, for Indianapolis. But uh, I'm wondering, did you know him? And, and if and if you did, do you have a favorite story about him, either on or off the field? Yeah, I, I do. I didn't know him well. We weren't close friends, but I'd done several events with him, knew him. Um, I, I was I was thought he was kind of, you know, Artie Donovan was the other Hall of Famer on that defensive line, and Artie was, you know, Artie was the guy that lit up the room and told the funny stories and was the prankster, and Gino always seemed to be kind of the gentleman, you know, he was a businessman, he had great success in business, but I always thought he was very comfortable in his own skin, um, you know, I, I, he wasn't the guy that said, look at me, you know, I'm a Hall of Famer, I was the great Colt, he kind of, I was just uh, fit into a room. My favorite Gino story, one of the first times I met him, I think he may have been coaching in the CFL at the time, but it was a, it was a ways back, and I introduced myself. We said hello, talked a little bit, and I told him I was from Baltimore. He said, Baltimore? I hate Baltimore. This was Forrest Gregg now, who was maybe Lombardi's greatest tackle ever. I think Lombardi said Forrest Gregg was the greatest player he ever coached. So I meet Forrest Gregg, and he says, I hate Baltimore. And I thought, well, what happened? What happened to Baltimore? Don't don't take it out on me. But he said, you know why? And I said, why? He said, because every time I went there, Gino Marchetti threw me around the football field for three hours. I hate Baltimore. He said, Gino was such a handful. So that, you know, we just lost Forrest Gregg a short time ago. And then a week later... And, and right away, I connected that story of Forrest Gregg talking about Gino Marchetti saying every time he came to Baltimore it was a miserable trip because he knew he had to deal with Gino Marchetti, who he had the ultimate respect for. So um, Gino was Gino was a guy that wouldn't tell you who he was, I think. You know, everybody else in the room might say, there's Gino Marchetti, one of the greats of all time. And, and Gino wasn't that guy. Scott, all Hall of Famers have to pass the eye test. What made Gino Marchetti special? To me, Goose, it was the fact that he was so complete. And think, think about that 4-3 defense back then. They were way ahead of the time. Their, their time, I, I covered, I did the games for that 2000 Raven defense that's in the conversation of the greatest of all time. And it kind of, I thought it kind of started up front when they, where they had uh, Tony Saragusa and Sam Adams, two run-stuffing defensive tackles. And then they had guys around at the speed of the Ray Lewis and McCrary coming off the edge and a, a lot of good things with that defense. Well, the Colts with that defense, they had Gino on the edge, but they had Art Donovan and Big Daddy Lipscomb playing their defensive tackle, so they just stuffed the run inside. You couldn't do anything against them inside. Gino set the edge. He, he took down quarterbacks. There, there, there's a piece with Gino on NFL Films where he swears he had nine sacks in a game, and Gino wasn't a guy who boasted, but you know, we, we don't have the sack 
stat to measure just how good he was. But you talk with the guys that played with him, and I, I spent time with Tom Maddy uh, right after he passed, and Tom said, Gino didn't say a lot, and he was a great teammate. He'd go out and have a beer with you. But when Gino spoke, everybody listened because they had the utmost respect for him. And I, I started thinking, I guess he was a teenager when he fought in the Battle of the Bulge. So, you know, how, how tough was that assignment going against Forrest Gregg when as a teenager you went through the Battle of the Bulge, right? Maybe that had, had something to do with his makeup, but just a, just a complete defensive end. Uh, there wasn't a weakness in his game. Well, as you know, Scott, you know, I did a, a book a while back with Upton Bell, and a lot of it was about Baltimore and, and uh, those great teams. And uh, uh, Gino said to me, uh, we were talking about the sort of love affair with the fans in Baltimore and those Baltimore Colts. Uh, and Gino said to me, we're like, the, we're like the high school kids who won the state championship in a little town. They never yeah. forget yeah. you. Um, where did Gino stand in the town even this far removed from his playing days? Well, he was in Philadelphia, you know, the later the, the later years. That that kind of was his home base. But he did so much business here that he was in Baltimore. And of course, Gino and all the other <clears throat> great Colt Hall of Famers, they are in the Ring of Honor at, at Raven Stadium. So even the young fans walk in and they see Gino Marchetti and John Unitas and Jim Parker and Lenny Moore and all those greats, John Mackey, up on the Ring of Honor. So they may, they may ask, uh, you know, Dad or Grandpa or their uncle about about these great guys. But Gino was a part of this community, and there, there's still a couple of Genos in the Baltimore area. They kind of did a, a comeback maybe eight, ten years ago where they opened up some additional restaurants, and you can't talk to anybody that's probably over 50 that doesn't have a Gino's restaurant story. Uh, Tom Maddy was talking to us. He said, yeah, Gino's used to bring them in. He said, we weren't making any money. Guys would line up for lunch, didn't have to pay for lunch because Gino brought in his burgers, and he said, we, we were all in line to get them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Gino's Giants, I bet you a Big Daddy had probably a handful of those Gino's Oh, I Giants. bet he did. He, you know what? I think Gino's was ahead, and they, they were tied into KFC, too, so you, you could get your burger, you could get your chicken, and I think they ran in, in front of McDonald's back in the day. I'm not, I'm not sure what Ray Kroc was doing back then, but Gino had that original, I think, that, that three-layer burger, right, where you had right. this, that, and, and pile that thing up high and get after it. <laughs> so, Scott, what was better? Gino's Giants or the New York Giants? I think Gino's Giants are undefeated. <laughs> and, 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 and Gino's Colts beat Gino beat the New York Giants in the '58 and the '59 championship game. Right? There, there's a funny story about the '58 game. Not funny that Gino broke his leg, but in the greatest game ever played, he did. He made a big tackle on Gifford late in the game that could have been a game changer. That's what a lot of guys in that game said. But he broke his leg, and you guys know back then in 1958, the NFL was just starting to burst on the steam. College football was king, but in the 58 game, Gino's father was kind of old school Italian. Was I was told Gino to stay away from the other guys so you don't get hurt. He was really worried about him getting injured, and that was the first game the family was able to see on TV, and they get to see their son finally play. This is 1958. He's been in the league, what, four or five years now, and he breaks his leg in the game. And I think I, I, I remember seeing a picture at Yankee Stadium of Gino with a cape over him, sitting on the sideline, watching the end of that game with a broken leg. He probably they probably took him in, diagnosed what he had, and Gino said, "Take me back out there. I want to see how the boys are doing." <laughs> how how uh, when when you heard of his passing? How, how would you sort of characterize the reaction in Baltimore? Because you know, to me, he was the unitus of their uh, of their defense, and and uh, I st you know obviously. I used to live in Baltimore, but it's been a long time. Uh, but I still think of it as a Colts town even more than a Ravens town. What, what was the sort of city reaction to that? Yeah, I, I, I think, Ron, you, there, there's a line drawn, and I don't know if it's 50 or 55, but those people our age definitely, man, that's a big chunk of us. Between Gino, the great player that was with the Colts team that probably had as good a relationship with a fan base that there's ever been in sports. So think of all the people he touched from there. And as you said, uh, Tom Maddy told me the same thing. He said, John led the offense and Gino led the defense. There are a lot of other great players and Hall of Famers there, but John was the man. Everybody knew what John said. That was it. On defense, what Gino said, that was it. And he didn't say a lot, but when he said it, 
damn, Gino was the guy, you better listen and follow. And, and Tom said, Gino did a little locker room policing. When he saw a guy getting out of line or a little too much about me and not us, Gino, Gino would grab that guy, have a conversation, that would be the end of that. So he, he carried a big stick because everybody respected him, and he, he was the man on that defense. So the, the thing that happened when I first heard of his passing was right away I went back to that story with Forrest Craig because I told the story last week when Forrest Craig passed about you know when I first met him, and he said, you're from Baltimore, and told the, uh, the Gino Marchetti story that I hate Baltimore because Gino would throw me around like a rag doll for three hours every time. I went there, and I thought, man, the irony, a week later, now we've lost Gino. So yeah, it's, it's a sad day, but what, what a life, right, to live to be 93 years old and do what he did, what, one, one of the game's greatest in the National Football League, and then go on to have all the success he had in business. And he always stayed close to his family, uh, just a class, class act. Scott, thanks so much for the time. appreciate it, as always. Thanks. Guys, good to talk to you. Um, uh, sad day that we lost Gino, but good to, to talk about his life and, and what he meant to our town. <laughs> thanks. Love to hear from you, Scott. Thanks so much. Hey, guys. Good talking to you. Take care. Yeah. That was Hall of Fame voter Scott Garceau. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. We're nearing the finish line, so Robert, let's try this one more time. That's the two-minute warning. Yes, sir, it's time for the two-minute drill. So let's go, Goose. For the first time in 57 years, Nebraska failed to have a player drafted. So what in the name of Irving Fire and the Damakon Sioux is going on with the Huskers? Uh, nothing, which is the problem. <laughs> yeah, I hate to agree with my man from Dartmouth, but apparently so. Not much is going on. The Miami Hurricanes led all colleges 26 first-round draft picks in the 2000 decade. They followed that up with only four first-rounders in the 2010 decade. So what in the name of Michael Irvin and Cortez Kennedy is going on with the Hurricanes? can't believe I'm saying this. They're going to class. <laughs> can't believe you said it. <laughs> when it comes to ballers, the U is no longer in Miami. <laughs> the Washington Redskins used four of their ten draft picks on players who are not invited to the NFL Combine. What are the Redskins seeing players that everyone else doesn't? Future congressman. <laughs> well, seeing as how it has been 27 years since the Redskins won a playoff game, I would say what they're seeing is all the wrong things. Free agency is shaken out, and the draft is over. So who's the NFL's early favorite to win it all in 2019? Surprise, Patriots. <laughs> Vegas says it's the Patriots. Dartmouth says it's the Patriots. But I say it's the Saints. They will be on a mission after last year's screw job. What is Sebastian Janikowski's legacy? Strongest legs since Sid Sharif. Ooh, good call. Ooh, nice. S-I-D. Uh, look, ever heard of Big Hat No Cattle? Well, he was Bigfoot, no title. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Will there ever be another kicker or punter drafted in the first round? Uh, is Al Davis still alive? Uh, then no. They would have to clone Al, and they forgot to do that, so I would say no. T.J. Hawkinson, T.J. Watt, or T.J. Hooker? Thomas Jefferson or T.J. to his buddies. <laughs> T.J. Watt, he's the brightest star. Patriots didn't draft a tight end, lost Rob Gronkowski to retirement, and traded another tight end to Seattle this week. Are signs pointing to our Bill Belichick implementing a tight end free run and shoot offense? Uh, no, they're pointing to Gronk coming back. Neither. They're going to Army's lonely end formation because the way it's going, they may only ha they may only have one receiver. That's the end of the game. Well, this is a lonely land. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website, talkfamenetwork.com, or look for us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, find us next week right here at this time and on this station. Thanks for listening to our lonely end.